1937, James Landis, then dean of Harvard Law School, delivered a series of lectures which were published the following year under the title The Administrative Process. Landis had just completed a two-year tenure as chairman of the newly established Securities and Exchange Commission, and he used the lectures to express his views on the expanding regulatory state. With time, Landis's slim volume came to be seen as a manifesto of sorts for a government filled with politically disinterested bureaucrats possessing specialized knowledge. As he put it there, quote, with the rise of regulation, the need for expertness became dominant, for the art of regulating an industry requires knowledge of the details of its operation, ability to shift requirements as the condition of the industry may dictate, the pursuit of energetic measures upon the appearance of an emergency, and the power through enforcement to realize conclusions as to policy, close quote. A decade later, Jerome Frank, an American appellate judge, published an article on the same topic. As it happens, Frank, too, had served as chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, and like Landis, he was an ardent proponent of active government. Yet in his essay, quote, The Place of the Expert in a Democratic Society, he expressed a different view. Quote, We must have specialists, but we must democratize them. We must see to it that they do not, in an authoritarian manner, repel novelties. We must, too, subject the experts to constant criticism by the laity. We must, therefore, demand that the experts translate their esoteric formulations into terms easily comprehensible by non-experts, close quote. Landis and Frank express here the inevitable and probably perennial tension that every democracy faces. It's the tension between two views, both seemingly well-supported. On the one hand, democratic decision-making isn't worth much if the people only get to decide on trivial matters. On the other hand, deference to expertise makes a lot of sense when the matter to be decided involves a lot of specialized knowledge that most people simply don't possess. These are the two basic positions. Actual debates are more nuanced, allowing for different answers depending on subject matter, technical complexity of the decision, the extent to which we believe the experts in a given field have robust mechanisms for criticizing and revising dominant views within their field, the extent to which experts within a field disagree with each other, and many others. In practice, all polities adopt some division of labor between democracy and expertise. A polity that relies on democratic procedures to decide what percentage of its budget to allocate to, to defense and what to health care is not likely to use the same procedure to decide on how to allocate the funds within these categories. Whether, for example, to invest in more jet planes or boost cybersecurity, whether to spend more on mental health treatments, or cancer research. And yet, opinions still differ on the right mix between politics and expertise. Politics and Expertise, How to Use Science in a Democratic Society, is also the title of Zeynep Pamuk's book on the topic, published by Princeton University Press in 2021. Though it's a book of political theory, it touches on some very practical issues, including the response to COVID-19, 
a topic where the tension between democracy and science was very much part of the global conversation. Zainab is an associate professor in the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Oxford and a professorial fellow of Nuffield College. And she is joining us today to talk about some of these questions. So Zainab, your, your book is called Politics and Expertise, How to Use Science in a Democratic Society. And in a way, when I was reading it, I thought this this goes back to kind of earlier earliest debates uh, in ancient Greek philosophy uh, about sort of why democracy. And so, um, and throughout history, opponents of democracy would say, "How can we let these ignorant masses decide on questions about which they have no idea?" So today we're all good Democrats, and so we all agree that that uh, important questions about how the life of the polity should be should go should be decided by the people. But we still have this. Uh, the, so the the old question, in a way, gets rephrased or reformulated about the limits of democracy, or how should we balance the the this the idea that the people should decide with our recognition of experts and their specialized knowledge. So perhaps you could start by telling us a bit more about this topic and how, you know, the, the, the different views, what in particular, what's your take on the issue, maybe how you got to be interested in it. As you say, the problem of expertise and its tension with democracy is an age old problem. But uh, I start in my book, uh, by pointing out that the, the modern version of it uh, is a bit different than the, the platonic one, which is about who should rule and on what grounds do we justify rule. We, as you say, good Democrats, we have um, accepted that we want democracy, perhaps for different reasons. I mean, some people defend it on the grounds that it brings about good outcomes, but uh, I'm, I'm more drawn to justifications on the grounds of equality or freedom. And then we also recognize that we depend on experts um, to attain certain policy ends, especially in a complex, highly bureaucratized um, mass democracy. So the problem that the presence of experts, the dependence on expertise raises for democracy in particular is that expertise and democratic decision-making draw their authority from different sources. Experts have a claim uh, to superior knowledge. They get their authority from uh, truth. Whereas democracy traces its source of authority to the agreement of citizens or the representatives, um, to the, the majority being persuaded that something is best. And of course, these clash. So when experts come with um, proposals about what ought to be done or, or what the right answer is, they have to be assented to by people who do not have the expertise, who do not share that knowledge, and then we have a problem. So um, I wanted to take up this, this version of the, the problem. And I was particularly concerned about the, the challenges that climate change raised for, uh, for us, for the world today. Um, so I, initially I thought it was gonna be a project on climate science and democracy specifically. But then as I was looking into the climate debate, I saw that this is a more general problem about how science gets um, translated and used or misused in, in many cases in a range of issues. So it, um, the COVID pandemic showed us that pandemics, disease, public health issues are, are a significant example. 
Um, environmental issues have always been at the forefront of the um, expertise, politics, nexus. And, and there are various issues now raised by artificial intelligence technologies, which have a similar structure, although there are other um, parts of it as well. Um, so I thought I would examine the issue from a broader perspective of the relationship between expertise, specifically science, scientists and democracy. So, yes, and we will we'll definitely talk about COVID later on, because that seems to me to be one, even though it was it was almost an afterthought or it was good timing on your part that you were ha- able to fit that in at the end. But what I I think it's fair to say that Danny and I both were intrigued by the book because of the opening chapter and your description of the Italian earthquake situation and then a, a, a scientists being sued for failure to predict earthquakes. Maybe maybe before, I, I might have a follow-up question, but why don't you just introduce that, uh, how that book opens? Because it's a very powerful opening, I thought, for the book. Yeah, it's a fascinating case. Um, so it, it's a story of an earthquake. Well, it starts two, three months before the earthquake in a small Italian village called L'Aquila, Um, And there are these constant low-level tremors that scientists call a seismic swarm. And of course, the inhabitants are terrified. They think something bad is about to happen. So the the public officials gather a committee of seismologists, and they, they say it's extremely unlikely that this kind of seismic swarm is followed by a large earthquake. And the public health official then translates this into even simpler terms and says, there's absolutely no danger. Everybody stay put, nothing to be afraid of. And then people who were maybe thinking about leaving the town, staying elsewhere, they change their minds. And especially the ones who trust the science most um, change their minds. And then there is a big earthquake. Um, I think 310 people die um, and people are furious and and they want to, to... you can say hold the, the scientists accountable or can say take it out on the scientists um, and the, the scientists are prosecuted, not for failing to predict the earthquake, um, but for um, going beyond and this kind of uh, in negligence in advising and giving them advice that goes beyond what they what they knew. And that was in the face of a of a contrary view put out by. I don't know what you call it. Was he well? Again, it, it, maybe I'll leave you to explain that. That there was a, a, a lone scientist, a maverick scientist who. Yeah. So there's this lab technician who had been using. I mean, I don't. I don't want to judge, but I'd say pseudoscientific techniques using radon measurements or something, um, creating big panic, saying the big earthquake is going to strike in, you know, very soon. And so he was. He was definitely creating a lot of alarm and and the public health officials desire to to calm everyone down was was partly spurred by by his fear mongering and of course fear is always part of the the story in these kinds of especially urgent alarming potentially catastrophic cases so there's there's this calculus like do you try to calm people down do you try to be as as objective or neutral as possible um, you know, what is the role of the, the scientist? What is the role of the, the public official in navigating these dilemmas and giving advice to the public? As I said, that was 
that really captivated us that as a, as lawyers. I, I mean, we were, a, I, I guess we were slightly aware of that case, but did not know any of the, as much to the details as we got through the book. So that starts the book off. Curious. Yeah. So, so yeah, I must say that um, I, I found this case interesting in part because um, I guess the initial reaction of, of everyone just seeing the headline was, oh, those crazy Italians, but don't they know that that earthquakes are, are unpredictable? And, and uh, um, but but then you, you understand that there is a little bit more to to the story. Um, but this. OK, so, so maybe through this case or any other climate change is, is another good one. We could get to this 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 question of, OK, so science um, versus politics or science versus democracy. And what's your kind of so so your take, uh, but I'll let you develop this, is is that scientists need to listen more, maybe society should respect more uh democracy. And if we are committed to the idea of democracy, then 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 we should perhaps I don't want to maybe say democratize science, although maybe you are willing to take up this this uh term, but that that science should should be subjected to some kind of democratic accountability so so can you can you say a bit more about about that yeah absolutely so part of the argument and 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 this is an important um background or the the grounding of the argument is that science itself um is always uncertain it's incomplete and it's value laden uh, which means that when scientists make judgments about what sorts of statements to accept, how to define their concepts, where to set evidentiary thresholds, um, and especially at the, the intersection of public policy with scientific, uh, scientific findings, decisions about what advice to give always involve value judgments about, about what's best, about what, what we can assume, about how do you trade off different kinds of errors, about what, what kind of consequences it's best to avoid. So given this, the problem is not about holding scientists accountable to the accuracy of their findings in the sense that you know peer review is set up to do. That, that is necessary and, and that has to exist. But when it comes to advising um, policymakers and the public, there's more to it, which is that scientists have to be held accountable for the value judgments that they are making in the scientific process. So this is not just about, oh, here's the science and then, you know, um, how do we which policy do we prefer? Let's say climate change. Do we prefer a carbon tax or a um, whatever, an offsetting thing or a ban? Or it's it's not about that. It's about at the stage of saying that this much warming is expected in this century. What value judgments went into that, and what trade offs were being made? Um, and I argue that for those kinds of judgments, we need accountability, and we need to have formal institutions set up and oriented toward the kind of critical scrutiny that will allow the public and policymakers the best possible chance to first understand and then examine these judgments. And then if necessary, change the, the assumptions and values that have gone into the, um, the advice in order to make it more compatible with the, the values, the risk um, orientations of, uh, of the citizens that will be affected. So we will ask you in a in a few minutes about this your proposal for a science court uh, which you call it but i wonder just in the as a transition to that is it is it fair to say that one of the things you're trying to accomplish in the book is 
effectively to say what happened in Italy, uh, a, a tort lawsuit against the scientists is not the way to go, that there are, you're trying to develop a better method for resolving disputes like that. That's exactly right. I, I don't think it's it's the best solution. I mean, far from it to take it out on scientists after the fact, blame them, sue them. Um, that is not a good accountability mechanism. But the idea that you need some accountability for the advice is important. Um, and I argue that we can handle this in a much healthier way by focusing on changing the institutions that deal with advice and also looking at earlier stages in the process before, you know, before people die in the earthquake. Um, how could we structure this better? So that leads uh, to the the proposal that that Richard mentioned. That's that's in your book. And again, I think most of, both of us were were very much intrigued by this because we're we're academic lawyers. Uh, so you have the this proposal for what you call a, a science court, um, which um, I understand from your book. I did not know this before reading it. Has a bit of a history, but but to which you give a twist. So, so if you could tell, uh, I suspect most listeners will will never have heard about it. So if you could tell both about the history and and your your take on it, and then maybe we could kind of see where where it, where where it goes. The original science court was proposed in the 1970s by um, scientist and um, policymaker called Arthur Kentrowitz. So the 70s was a time in the U.S. when scientists had a very prominent public presence, um, kind of due to their success in winning the war and their role in the Cold War and so on. So they were giving a lot of advice. They had the direct telephone lines to the president, um, but there was also a lot of controversy around disagreeing scientists, very prominently giving different advice on issues as, as small as the fluoridation of water, as, as big as, you know, um, nuclear issues. And Kantrowitz thought it would be healthy to resolve these disagreements um, in, a, in a public forum where scientists could make the competing sides of a, of a case and a panel of scientists judges would settle the issue. The key thing was the, the court structure, the adversarial court structure, um, and also the publicity, that this would be oriented towards citizens, that people would watch this and hopefully debates would be settled. Uh, I thought this was a, a very interesting institution, but I also thought his proposal was, was pretty technocratic and a bit naive in its separation of the facts and values and this idea that the facts of a scientific matter could be settled by a panel of scientists. I thought this can only be workable if this is a more political institution where what you're settling is not the science, not the fact, but what kind of um, factual basis you can accept for a policy purpose. Understanding that this is, you know, this is like scientific advice, tentative, temporary, um, what we accept for now for a political purpose. The other issue is that the, the scientists judges made this a, a pretty technocratic institution. Um, and I thought, especially given the, the decades long tradition within political theory of, of going to deliberative experiments and um, citizen participation innovations, um, I thought it would make a lot more sense to have citizens participate. But once again, because they're, they're not experts, what they would be doing would not be to settle the science um, for the scientists, but they would be 
making a policy proposal. Um, and, and so I also thought it, it has to be simplified. It should be a policy court with two policy proposals on the table, not separating the facts and the values in the way the original proposed. And so so if we kind of let's let's kind of go a little bit more into the, the weeds here just a bit. So so suppose we have a question about um, related to climate change. And so would it be do do you so so would it be a question like cap and trade versus uh yes or no or would it be cap and trade versus uh restriction on certain uses and then okay so we go to the court and we present the arguments there's a jury of lay people and they decide whatever they decide what then so let's say they 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 make a certain, so is this on your proposal, do you want this to be binding on on the government, or or is this advisory itself? So 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 what what how will it sort of work in 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 practice? This was a difficult decision to make on my part because I I, I see problems with both and advantages to both binding not binding. In the end, I, I came down on the non-binding side because I I, I find it a bit troubling to give uh, a small number of citizens the power to make policies that will be binding on millions of people. I think that is undemocratic. I mean, what's democratic? You can, there are different meanings, whatever. And I, I understand people who say it's a different notion of democracy, it's representative in a different sense. But I, I think it the idea that people vote for representatives and they're um, authorized to make policy, that that's pretty strong. And I, I think giving unauthorized bodies this power uh, troubles me. Of course, that means the court would be less powerful by design. Some people think it would be pointless, that it would just be ignored. I think given what we know about how participatory institutions have worked in the past, there are ways to make it more influential. I mean, following the, the climate uh, convention in France um, these past few years. That's been very interesting. That's been a highly um, influential, very prominent uh, organ institution. And it, I don't think it's been co-opted that much by, by the organizers and experts. And it's it's had influence on policy. Macron committed to taking it seriously, um, or more than that, I think he committed to implementing some of the things that came out of it. So I think that was a good example of, of actual um, influence being acquired by an organization of this sort without giving it official power to make binding policy. So I try to go for something like that, whatever would um, increase its, its public visibility and um, power without formal policymaking power. So I teach criminal law as one of my courses for, and of course, one of the things we do, all, all professors do this, is we critique whatever area we're interested in and get upset and mad about what's going on out there. And one of the things all criminal law profs that I'm aware of would say is the jury system is bankrupt in Canada. It doesn't work. <laughs> and of course, ideally, I think it is a great idea that we have citizens involved in the criminal justice process. But what happens in reality, at least in the certainly in the 20th century, this started to happen, is that a lot of the people that you'd want on juries were able to avoid jury duty because you'd, they'd rather be in their jobs making, you know, $200 a day than $20 a day. So they so juries become a 
not a jury of your peers, but juries that are very uh, stratified, let's say. And I just, I know this, that sort of goes beyond the scope of your book, but I just wondered if you, uh, you know, had to grapple with any of those problems with juries as you, as you uh, wrote the book. Interesting. I grappled with other kinds of problems with juries, which is that, you know, they're basically citizens who don't know the arguments being made. So how can they make um, a decision that follows the science? And I have some answers for that. Um, I think that's the wrong framing. They're not meant to have superior scientific knowledge. I actually didn't grapple with the fact of this the selection problem. And, and I think I think that is worrisome. Um, so I not knowing the system as, as well as you, how why is this possible? What allows people to get out of it? I mean, can't you make it such that you can't excuse yourself or it's very difficult or um you know what again I say ideally, and it used to be the case that you were it was very hard to get off jury duty. But yeah. The, you know, over time, judges have allowed people who make the argument that, well, I, I you know, I'm, I'm a sole breadwinner. I, I need I cannot spend three, six weeks on this jury trial because it'll bankrupt me. And and then it became so easy for basically the you know middle to upper class citizens to avoid jury duty. And I think probably it's a, it's it's been created by judges allowing that. I, I just thought it would be interesting to to let you know that that's for that maybe that's for another paper down the road you can <laughs> yeah yeah I appreciate it I mean I think that that suggests the need to reform the jury system not to give up on the idea and then use similar kind of um, reform in order to to recruit people for these uh, for a science court and and whatnot I, yeah I think that sounds like a, a, a serious problem and given the the benefits of the the jury system in in the ideal, as you say, um, I think the right thing to do would be to, to try to reform it. And I'm sure you have more ideas on how than I I do. And well, yeah, in, the, in a way, you'd have to wait. You'd have to see how the science jury works, the jury in the science court works over time, and then start. You know, it's a constant sort of monitoring of it. I I would think. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but what would happen? In, so in, in, in a jury trial, typically the juries feel fairly safe because if they convict, the person goes is incarcerated. And if they don't convict, the person goes free. And given what's happening with the anti-science movement and in Canada, we had the big truck protest. If you have a science jury that decides, for instance, to to uh, in in the face of say a new COVID strain or something, to order a lockdown or to to recommend a lockdown, and then that's what happens. And I I, I just worry that you know death threats against them or who knows what you know could happen because of the anti-science lobby. So how would you protect your jury? I'm now just curious. Did you even think about that possibility with juries? Yeah, I think they would need to be given the same kind of protection that Anthony Fauci or, or other scientific advisors or in some cases policymakers are given. I mean, I don't know how common it is, but we, we do see a concerning rise in threat against scientists um, and so on. So it's, it's certainly possible. I couldn't rule it out. Um, on the other hand, there will be a significant number. I mean, I don't know if it'll be like... 50 or 72, whatever, or 100. Um, but th there'd be a significant number of them. So it would be like a, 
a kind of parliament. So I'm not thinking 12 people like a jury. So the ah, responsibility okay. would be, yeah, I think so. I, it's it's mainly because of, of issues with getting a representative enough sample of people in there. So people who are doing the the random selection stuff say you can't have a very small number and, and say this is a representative body. Right. Um, for policy court, that's, that's more important, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. It's it's important in any case. So maybe the responsibility would be shared, and nobody would would be the um, the obvious scapegoat. But but yeah, that's that's a very concerning trend, especially since my book argues for a pretty public and increasingly controversy inviting role for scientists as well. And I've talked to a lot of scientists who've said, well, that's all very well, but do you know how taxing it is with social media and um, yeah. you know threats and the, the general anti-science sentiment to do this kind of thing? And I, I agree that it can be heroic and it's not for everyone. Those are those are details to be worked out when we get so, the science court, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I will now come as a, a bit of a, a at least for the sake of our discussion as a as a devil's advocate and um and we'll we'll say the following i i have to say i have some sympathy to the view so not just for the sake of argument but 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 anyway scientists can say that if you're kind of looking throughout history uh they've somehow stumbled upon or or managed to find the one way of discovering the truth about about our our world and that the successes that this that science has had over um the last few centuries especially have been because they've they've adopted a, a method and and the remarkable success here is is exactly given what we know from you know so, sociologists of science, which is that you know scientists are human; they're driven by the same things that other humans like fame and greed and 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 recognition, and they suffer from the same prejudices and biases from the rest of like the rest of us. And so the remarkable thing is that despite all this, despite the fact that scientists are are human just like the rest of us. Um, science has, has made the, these remarkable s- s- achievements that that it's, it's had, and one of the key elements of science on this story, at least, is that scientists have worked hard on developing these norms of that that actually try to keep them apart from politics. For example, of course, we all know, like I said, scientists are human too, but but they at least. There's an effort, a conscientious effort to distinguish science from from politics and 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 personal views. And they will come to you and say, rather than try to protect this, rather than maybe try to to expand this, you're trying to to go into this domain that and 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 ruin it, so to speak, this achievement by by bringing politics into it. Now I, I will say so. So here I'm also. I, I want to say that I'm. I, I despite what I said about my sympathy to the point I just made, I I I I very much see where you're coming because, you know, like everyone, like any other academic during COVID, I wrote my my COVID paper. <laughs> Every academic wrote a COVID paper, and I I did too. And my topic was about cost benefit analysis and 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 COVID and. And in a way, I started by kind of wanting to say, 
yeah, let's let's listen to scientists and they will do the cost benefit analysis and 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 the rest of us should listen to them. But but the more I I, I wrote the paper, it kind of changed direction to some extent, because I kind of saw, yeah, just like you said, on many of these questions, it's not just that there is uncertainty and the amount of uncertainty in the beginning was enormous, is that there are valid questions. How much does, you know, we value the, the idea of living um, or, or freedom, if you want to call that, against against life. So, so, so I'm, I'm, I, I recognize your position too, but I want to so, to come from the direction of someone will say um, there is a risk in 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 going in that direction, which is the risk of of damaging that 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 method or ethos or uh, uh, that scientists have have managed to build in the last two or three centuries. I think to start answering this question, um, first I need to clarify exactly at what point scientists or science uh, is is being held open to public scrutiny. So in my book, the, the places where I put scrutiny are at the beginning where decisions about funding are made. And I think this is this is really crucial because you as you say, scientists have made many discoveries, um, but basically they've had autonomy over which area, what kind of discovery, where to allocate money, um, I mean, it's 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 changed and it's more complicated now. There's a lot of political input too, uh, but we know that the needs of, of various communities, whether they are their patient groups or whether they are income groups, have been neglected by science, and and that's because partly because of the demographics of science, it's partly because of the I, I don't know the priorities of, of funding bodies. Um, so this this is a given that a lot of science is done with public funds and for the interests of the public. I think it's it's crucial to, to politicize that stage in order to, to allow science to be directed better to the needs of all citizen groups, all parts of society. So, so that, that's one key area where I think it does not, so, so would that diminish the quality of the science that comes out? I mean, it's, it's not giving um, citizens direct power to, to pick between grants, um, but it's it's opening up the, the process for more input into what kinds of approaches are pursued, which areas are pursued, and how. Because Also because what comes out of the scientific process shapes what's possible as a policy response. So with climate change, um, if you focus only on, on areas, for example, um, that are global or global temperature rise, then you're not going to be able to take any local measures because the, the data is not there and it's impossible. We know politically to, to reach uh, a, a global agreement. So you're kind of stuck. I think these kinds of issues are important and worth politicizing. So the, the middle part, the, the research part, I, I really do not open up for, for any kind of uh, scrutiny. There are no citizens in the lab watching over scientists' shoulder. Um, this, the accountability or the scrutiny comes at the stage of giving policy advice. And I would say that is very much a political process already. And to give scientists autonomy over scientific advice without any accountability is problematic from democratic uh, from a democratic perspective. So this is about science that directly affects policy. It's not about basic research that doesn't have any bearing on people's lives. But for science that does have this bearing, I think the internal mechanisms of science are geared towards correcting errors and correcting for certain kinds of problems. And, and uh, 
on the whole, they they do it pretty well. Although recently there have been issues about um, you know fraud and replication crisis and so on. But without going into any of that, accepting that that process works very well, it's not geared towards making sure um, that the kinds of value trade offs or decisions under uncertainty would be made in a way that that the the public would want. So at that stage, the facts and values are impossible to disentangle. And I don't see that as as part of the scientific process whose integrity will be threatened by opening it up to to politics. I see that as as very much a political stage, um, which for um, historical or political reasons has for a long time been granted autonomy or granted to scientists or, or other expert advisors. Um, and I think that's the problem. That totally makes sense to me. And I, and I guess it's reinforced by one of the, one of the chapters in the book that I was really eye opening to me. I, I, let me just ask you a quick question. How many scientific reports did you end up reading <laughs> to write oh, your book? It's impossible to put a number. I mean, over the, the course of a 10 lot? years or so, a lot. <laughs> Because so I, I, I've I don't know if I've ever read a scientific report, but uh, and I had no idea until I read your book that there is this kind of an unwritten rule. It seems like that there should be no dissent in a report. It it should be they should speak with one voice, and that's another area where, as a lawyer, I got intrigued because you suggested that. Well, I and I again I don't know how this will actually work in in reality, but to allow for dissenting views to come out in reports because, and you give the example of courts, appellate courts in particular. So our Supreme Court of Canada, the U.S. Supreme Court and others will allow, will have judges sometimes writing dissents. And it's a perfectly valid form of, uh, of judging. And so in your, uh, in your book, you talk about maybe one of the things that should be changed would be to allow for dissents to appear in reports. To me, it seemed self-evident that that should be the case but if it's an unwritten rule how do you then change that unwritten rule and by the way is that is that international is that true kind of across the board in all countries that produce reports i i, I don't have a have very broad international knowledge i i look at the the us and the uk a lot more i mean it's it's difficult to find comparative studies of of scientific advisory systems hopefully after covid we'll we'll get a lot more i know a few projects underway. So I don't, I don't know for sure. As far as how to, how to change an unwritten rule, I'm, I'm not sure. So during COVID, I was on the, uh, the lookout for anything that might resemble my proposal because there was, there was a lot of experimentation and, and, and new forms of advice coming out. And one thing I, I observed and I wrote about was the, the rise of rival advisory bodies to the government's official advisory body. So we saw this in the UK with there's the official SAGE, Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, and then there was the the independent SAGE because the official SAGE was very secretive, did not share its minutes, and then um, its advice also became contested. A bunch of scientists established this rival advisory body. Now, I don't know if it's easier, maybe maybe for just sociological reasons or human interaction reasons, it's easier to have a different body than for a group within a committee to come up with their own dissent. Now, I don't I, I don't really know if that's the case, but this is this is a very good example of the kind of thing that that gets at the, the very same spirit, um, a dissenting advisory document being shared with the public um, just comes from a different source. And, and I think 
Um, we saw that in a few other countries. I think in the US there was something similar, less institutionalized. The UK one was was very prominent and I think pretty effective. I remember once, uh, so at, 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 the, at Osgood, you know, obviously like any university, we have lots of committees. And I remember once, only once in the entire time that I've been on any committee, we were, I was involved in a committee where one of the, my colleagues wrote a dissenting view of a, of a committee report and I, nobody stopped him. He felt like he should just register publicly his dissent. And I thought maybe that's all that's required is just somebody that's good. I mean, I think I don't want to digress, but maybe it's remarkable that that this is possible in, in the Supreme Court. I, I once, I mean, the, the U.S., Supreme Court justice is constantly vehemently disagreeing with each other in these dissents. And then I'd, I'd read that, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, and Scalia were best friends. And, you know, they're so close <laughs> and getting along famously. Like, how is this possible? Keeping yeah. these apart and maintaining this relationship because you're there for life. Yep. Collegiality. It works. Apparently it was it was their their uh, shared love for opera that, that, <laughs> that got them together. That did it. Uh, Although recently um, there was a story in the New Yorker about Samuel Alito, and he was asked. Apparently, someone asked him, "What's it like to to be um, on the Supreme Court?" And he said, "Well, it's a little bit like being an academic. It means you're stuck with with uh, working with people you can't, you can't stand, or something like this." And I thought that's. <laughs> But that wouldn't happen. That wouldn't happen with science reports because they you don't they're they're not together for for life, are they? So, exactly. That's yeah. a big difference. So you mentioned oh so so we I mentioned before COVID um, and I I said that uh, every academic had to write their 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 COVID paper. Although interestingly, I remember seeing someone uh, I think an economist tweeting that. For everyone, every academic, COVID just confirmed whatever they they thought before. But never mind that. Uh, but but I I think but you and you mentioned that you were sort of towards the end of writing the book when when COVID started, and it made me think. Well, at least if if nothing else, it made your your you it's easy for you to justify your your project to to others non academics. There was no. No questions of why you're you're dealing with why you're writing about this because because I think it made the topic very very salient, and 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 so COVID in some respects now kind of a couple of years after uh, afterwards is is in some respects fading from our memories and and I suspect for many people um, it's just as well and they wouldn't want to hear or read <laughs> a word about it ever. But at the same time, it's still very much on people's minds. And just a few days ago, the New York Times Magazine published this very long article on on the question of the origins of COVID, so the, the lab leak versus the natural cause, uh, competing stories. And from the reactions to the story that I saw online, it's it seems that to that the issue is still very much alive and 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 raw for 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 many people. So so maybe that's our excuse to to go back to to COVID. So so again, as I said, um, you you have a, a COVID chapter and and uh, and and obviously COVID sort of brings out the the, the question of 
experts versus democracy in a very vivid way, and perhaps even in more than one way. So in one sense, it's this, if you go to the question of democracy beyond just majority rule, which is sort of more the topic that, that we've been talking about, it's, it's if, if we think about democracy as, as certain kind of liberties, then, then for many people, the restrictions on lockdowns were anti-democratic in some respects in this sense, but but also in the sense that's closer to our topic, sort of the dividing line between expert opinions and, and democratic decision-making. So at that time, at least in the beginning, we'll listen to the epidemiologists and they told us that we should stay at home and, and most of us did. Um, should we have done something else? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say we shouldn't have listened to what the epidemiologists said, but I think it would have been appropriate to have disagreeing epidemiologists. I mean, there was disagreement, but it was discouraged. It wasn't very public. And the ones who did make a a, a public statement or, or came very publicly against lockdowns were, were shunned, were um, torn apart either in the, the public health community or by scientists. And I think that that was really problematic because as you say, there was massive uncertainty in the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and yet we were getting advice that seemed very confident and very certain. Um, and I think at the very least, there could have been more consideration of, of alternatives, of alternative um, policy approaches besides complete lockdowns. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't, know what the best thing in terms of the right policy was for that time, but it is shocking given how drastic the measures were, how little disagreement there was and how little disagreement played out publicly. Um, And maybe this was appropriate in, I don't know, March, April. But then, you know, several months passed, so we're in the the fall, September, October, and we have another uh, another big wave, another set of big closures. And at that point, you wonder, you know, what's going to happen to to children's schooling? There are all sorts of other um, health conditions that are not being treated because hospitals are shut down. So what are the trade-offs being made? Are other policy options being really considered? Why don't we see a patchwork of policies, different places adopting different things? And by and large, we didn't see that kind of variation and enough discussion around it. And and I think that was problematic. So um, it would have been far better if if different views were, were given much more um, space and public treatment. It could be in a science court, you know, you debate lockdown versus a more targeted approach. Um, and, and lockdown might very well win out. I think there's some point where there's a lot of support for lockdowns and then and then the, there's a point when there, there wasn't. Um, but at least this kind of public discussion could have played out and, and I really didn't see it. And, and, and most countries followed the same um, same set of policies, which is also kind of surprising given how uncertain the science was. Yeah, it's interesting that Sweden, that no one could kind of accuse it for being a libertarian stronghold, actually took took a different a, a different view on this. So, so that that was, I I think, uh, interesting. Um, so and and so maybe uh, sort of we're we're moving towards the end. So, so so one question we could ask about COVID, kind of okay, so COVID happened, and so if 
let's say not COVID returning, although some people say it might, but but if another emergency emer- uh, come happens, um, can we hope for for better decision making uh, process than than before? Um, and so so I'll I'll ask this and maybe tie this. I don't know, but I'll tie this to to the question we typically ask at the end, which is. Um, Okay, so so what's the next project, and, and is it is it related to this? Is it kind of maybe learning from COVID or 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 beyond, uh, or or have you moved to to something completely different? In terms of whether we've learned enough lessons from COVID, well, I I hope so. I mean, this this experience should have taught us something, and I think following more publicly critical processes, more democratic processes around expert advice and. I, I've noted many examples of this working pretty well. Um, for example, in the vaccine distribution, there were um, some states in the U.S. that had far more participatory processes for deciding how to allocate, who to allocate forward, taking into account different needs besides the the age vulnerability calculus. The the rival advisory bodies gave a lot of um, airtime to to disagreement within the scientific community. Maybe the Sweden experience taught us some things about both the difficulties and the maybe the, the benefits or the advantages of trying something different. Um, so I think I think there, there are many lessons to be learned, and I hope we will continue to study and at least um, academics won't forget it as quickly um, as, as maybe the, the political discourse seems to have. Um, in terms of what's next for me, I'm, I'm moving in the direction of, of looking at technology, artificial intelligence, and how that's changing democracy. Um, it, it is fairly different in a way, but also continuous, um, because, first of all, because technology builds on science, um, and a lot of the, the people involved in technological discourses are experts of various kinds, but interestingly, also because a lot of um, what AI technologies are replacing is expert work. So they're actually replacing a different kind of worker, knowledge workers and um, people in state bureaucracies. And and that raises questions of of how exactly this changes expertise, the role of expertise in politics, um, how the, the power held in the hands of various experts today, whether it's judges or bureaucrats or financial experts are like who who gets that power of course one obvious answer is that the machine gets the power but obviously it's not um there are the people who are designing the the systems so i think there are, there are very interesting shifts happening that are related to and continuous with problems of expertise in politics so i think it's it's kind of a a natural second project while also moving me a little bit away from from the same uh topics Right. Uh, as it happens, I'm I'm teaching a course related to some of these issues in the next semester, so I'm I'm reading <laughs> so much about this right now. So, so so maybe if there's a book uh, coming up, we, we we can have you again. But for the time being, I think uh, we should say uh, thank you. This was really fascinating for us, and um, and I hope that our listeners will also have benefited from this and, and learn something. Zainab, thank you so much. 